Connections Cast, brought to you by TDN Australia and New Zealand. Hello, I'm Angus Rowland and welcome to a TDN AusNZ Connections Cast special presented by Newgate, raising top class racehorses. This week we have assembled some of the leading thinkers in the auction space to give their views on ways to sort the wheat from the chaff. Particularly as we approach Easter, where at first blush they all look pretty wheaty. Our first guest is responsible for putting the polish on those equine grains. As the stud manager for one of the nation's leading vendors, and a man that has held the binoculars himself as a trainer, Paul Massara can wear two hats for this chat. Paul, welcome. Thank Aside you. from doing podcasts, what's the biggest pain a vendor faces at sale time? Oh, I think the marketplace at the time and what's going on. Uh, that's always a bit of a risk, whatever's happening at the time. But uh, at the moment, other than the war in the Ukraine, I think things are, are pretty steady. And I think when confidence is up, uh, our confidence is up, we know we've got the stock and the quality of horse to, to match what uh, the marketplace is after. So it's all the other things that you can't see coming that normally frighten us at the time. But uh, we're pretty well prepared for this one. Well, hopefully between now and Tuesday, not too much gets thrown at us because we've had plenty on our plate over the last short while and over the last two years, really, when you think about it. Our next guest has trained a Group 1 winner in the Arrowfield Silks, plus an ever-growing number of quality black-type winners for owners based on both sides of the equator. He came up under some of the biggest names in the business as an integral part of the Cummings and Waterhouse operations and of all of today's guests has the best perspective on what is needed to get a horse to perform on the track when you are riding one. Mark Newnham, welcome. Your inspections are underway. Given the health of the market, what are you communicating to your owners around expectations? Have you told them to be prepared to get the moss out of their wallets? Uh, yeah, hi Gus. Um, oh look, I think that's what they're expecting, judging by um, the sales season to date. But against that, um, we're in a period of Australian racing that is really booming. There's a really positive vibe about it. Um, prize money keeps going up and there's a good opportunity for owners at every level, whether they own 100% of the horse or 5% of the horse, to get a good return and get a good opportunity to attend a big race day, whether that be even at Canberra or Newcastle mm. now, we have million dollar races. So um, there's a, there's a big, big opportunity for owners right across the board. And they should be calling you, of course. Why would you call anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> well, they might call this next bloke. Our final guest has the distinction of sourcing a recent Derby winner out of Easter for only a hundred grand. He's nailed slipper winners, Group One sprinters who went on to be Foundation stallions, and that's just in Australia. Hubie de Berg, welcome to Sydney. Welcome back to Sydney. I think the other great gift you have bequeathed Australia is about a thousand young bloodstock agents. What's it like to be uh, on one and then look across the ring and see one of the kids that came up under you bidding against you? Uh, thanks, guys. Well, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to feel like a dribbling old schoolmaster uh, <laughs> or headmaster or anything else, but um, it's great to see the lads doing what they did. Yeah. But I mean, you know, when I left uh, left working for Shake Down, I, I started with in partnership with uh, with uh, Dermot Farrington. Uh, we worked together because neither of us had any clients, so we just clubbed together and we said we could hope we could find somebody. Misery loves uh, company. Yeah, exactly. So we started like that, and then. Uh, that sort of moved on and then James Harron appeared on the scene and of course was absolutely brilliant and he's gone on and done what he's done and um, now Will Johnson's the new young gun whatever you like to say so it looks like he's going pretty well at the moment so um, yeah you know it's, it's a funny sort of game because um, we're getting on getting a bit of age in this whole thing you know so it's really the young people of the future it's, I've always thought that I've got a you know uh, Will Buick the jockey the top jockey I've got his brother Martin working for me now he replaced Will but I really believe that the young people are the future of our industry and um, they get to people that, that I probably couldn't get to, but I want them to travel. I, I've always said that with our staff, it's a global industry. And I've had, I had uh, like Martin at the moment, who's with me, he was in Dubai last week. Mm. He'll be in, a, in um, Scandinavia in two weeks time. You know, it, it'll be a spread and that's the way the, the business is going. And these young guys find the young people with the money and the young people that are probably the future, you know? 
Yeah, I hear, and, and I imagine young people listening to this are probably thinking, well, I'll get out of this rain in the east coast of Australia and uh, hit Hubie up for a job in the Northern Hemisphere, saunas in, in Sweden and uh, skiing, indoor skiing in Dubai. Sounds, sounds fun. Let's get into it. Uh, first of all, some assumptions. I, I think we need to take it as read that when you're assessing and selecting yearlings, you would take many factors of the individual in front of you into account. Uh, we'll speak more generally today. We should also say these are informed opinions. Our guests have a wealth of experience, but they aren't Nostradamus. Everyone has their own way of doing things. Right, boys? Correct. Agreed, yep. So let's talk processes. We're sitting here <coughs> a couple of days out from a major sale. What is the process to get to this point, Mark? When do you start working on a sale like Easter? Oh, probably three or four weeks ago. Um, certainly after we got Melbourne out of the way. Mm. Um, and look, it's an important time of me, for me as far as preparing horses um, for the major races coming up. So that extra time might be, you know, I find the quietest time for me is about 4am on Sunday morning <laughs> because I'm still awake. So I get up and I'll do programming for the horses or I'll look at sales catalogues because the phone doesn't ring and you don't get disturbed, you get to have a couple of hours um, to yourself. And look, it'll be, my process usually starts with stallions of offspring I like to train, um, and generally farms um, I like to do business with, and then it, you just keep cutting back your list until you find the ones that, that you, can, you can afford I was and going to then, say, then someone else cuts back your list for you in the ring when they're bidding against or you. Or the right? vet cuts your list back yeah. as well. So, you know, you learn, though, to be forgiving of some things and others and just the way you train and the types of horses you train. Generally, trainers will buy the same types of horses that they enjoy training, mm. you know. Um, so, and, and, and generally, what your owners are used to buying into as well. Um, you know, if you've had a particular area where you've been successful, um, you generally go back to that. Yeah, yeah. Hubie, obviously, I don't know your nocturnal habits, but I'm tipping you not up at 4 a.m. No, no, uh, looking go, at, at catalogs. Hubie's just going to bed. Yeah, I'm going to bed. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the good old days I used to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Got a good memory. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As a, as a non-trainer, yeah. but as someone who's obviously got a bit more of a global outlook as well, you're looking at sales all over the place, yeah. is, is your approach is obviously different to Mark's. Yeah, in different sort of ways. I mean, it, it, we've got to sort of kind of wear two sets of glasses here. The, the European type of horse is a totally different type of horse to the Australian type of horse. Mm -hmm. So you've got to come down and you just look for a different horse, you know. So down here, the last few years, I've probably been mostly working in with Scott Darby and the Derby Racing guys, you know. So in that sort of job, it was a case of looking at the individuals, not looking at the pedigree. And uh, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a strong uh, understander of the Australian pedigrees. I know the good ones, obviously, but I don't know the typical horse that would want to want a listed race at um, at uh, Newcastle or something. Like that. I don't know if that was equivalent to what it would have been back in Europe. So I was relying more on me doing the the types of the horses, and then they would match in with the pedigrees if they could sell it or they couldn't. But there are certain things, I mean, if I'm buying, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, where we have, do have a number of clients and everything else, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I don't buy first season sarahs, but that's completely wrong. It's probably, I should be. Yeah. I basically don't because the risk element is so high. We both basically buy technically proven standards. Go with what you know. Yeah, well, yeah, the more the proven standard, yeah. you know, and we try not buying out of old mares. We try to buy young mares. Uh, we try to buy into producing families, but I, I would prefer to be given a blank sheet, go look at the type first, and not to be guided by the catalogue. Yes. If you know what I mean, you know? And then then you can match it and that and that's when it becomes price related. If it's by a top stallion, you know, it's a snitchel or whatever, it's gonna be worth twice as much as if it was by whatever you know so that's what builds the price thing but actually I'd, I'd prefer to see the type first before I started seeing the pedigree. And what about you? You're on the other side of the, the coin but obviously also Arrowfield, I mean they are bringing big drafts to several sales there must be a huge amount of sort of juggling and administration involved in getting ready for a sale as much as there is the sort of nuance of getting a horse ready right yeah absolutely and for us i guess the decision making goes back to when we have a, a matings meeting very early on even yeah. uh, to decide whether or not which stallions the mayor's going to go to of course which might have 
to do with their due date. So if it's a later horse, uh, out of a good mare, like, you know, the foal's going to be a latish foal, we've, it's got to be a good enough stallion to make sure it can get into Easter. So there's certain standards like that that uh, you have to keep in, to cons- take into consideration uh, from the very beginning. So it's a long process for us, and obviously the sales companies inspect the horses right through. And at the end of the day, we have perfect alignment with the sales companies because we're all wanting the best outcome for our horses. So we try and place them where they're, uh, they're going to be best found. And uh, obviously we've got a big draft here and a high quality draft of mainly proven stallions. This podcast is brought to you by Newgate, raising top class racehorses. Newgate has built a reputation not only as a leading stallion farm, but a leading stallion nursery. In the last few years alone, yearling buyers could have purchased stallion prospects of the quality of champion first season sire better than ready. Vinery Studs Coolmore Stud Stakes winner Exceedance, Dubawi's Group 1 winning champion two-year-old of South Africa Willow Magic, Group 1 McKinnon Stakes winner and Young Western Australian sire Awesome Rock, Cambridge Studs champion two-year-old Sword of State and Newgate's very own champion two-year-old and Golden Slipper winner Stay Inside. Newgate, raising and consigning top-class future stallions. I want to sort of break this chat into two sections, I guess, if you like. We'll talk the pedigrees first and, and, and what you look at in, in the, the book, and then we'll talk about what you're looking at on type uh, uh, as well. Uh, first season sires, and Hubie, you've already mentioned that they're not high on your agenda when you're assessing Australian sales, but there's a, there's a real laundry list of first season size at, at, at this year's sale. Harry Angel, Justify, The Autumn Sun, Trapeze Artist written by, US Navy flag. It's a good lineup, Mark. What, what are your thoughts on first season size? How do you assess them? Uh, very similar to Hubie. I tend to, I tend to go to um, stallions I've had success with right. or have been successful um, in the past. I may, may buy one or two um, by first season stallions, but I generally go with the proven formula. And and Paul, obviously, you're regularly bringing first season size or yearlings by first season size to market. There there is a sort of an element, and you, you hear it quite a bit on these chats, that people feel that they potentially overpay for first season size because they're the bright new thing. How how do you find it to market first season size to? buyers well it depends on what the first season size are obviously like when you've got a horse like uh, the autumn sun coming to this sale he's obviously a very high profile horse everyone knows him he was a great horse he's by fabulous size good broodmare he's got kind of all the credentials you'd like mm. so there's first season size and there's first season size you know and uh, and I think uh, it also depends on the mares that they go to don't forget they're 50% of the equation yeah. so people take that into consideration as well when they're looking at these first season size but fundamentally uh, over the past that uh, this particular sale has been a, a sale for the proven types of horses mm. and uh, that's always the way it has been. Do you remember, and I, I'll ask this question to you as well, Mark, afterwards, Do you, when you see a, a horse buy a stallion that you remember as a yearling or as a young horse or that you've had something to do with, do, do, do your ears prick up, metaphorically speaking? Are you more drawn to them or...? There's no doubt people, you know, you fish where you've caught fish before. Mm. And uh, that's why trainers, uh, owners, they love to buy to families that they know because they're familiar with the traits of that family. They know what they're looking for. They know what the good ones look like. And there's a natural drawing towards that pool. So uh, I, I know what you're saying. People do mm. tend to tend to always uh, look where they've looked before. And uh, there's no doubt if people have success of particular farms like People might have bought horses off Arrowfield and had a lot of yeah. success and had a gold slipper win or whatever else. They're likely to come back. And there's no doubt that repeat business is a big part of the game. Made of heaven. Oh, I've already <laughs> seen <laughs> beating a path. Uh, he, he's actually he's a really nice colt. Um, uh, she was a filly that I got really very early in my career, which was fantastic help to me. Um, she didn't race again after winning the spring champion stakes, but she'd done her job. And um, but they are the types that you'll go and look at their offspring. Um, I, unfortunately, now I look at Pedigree Page, and I've won, I've, when I was a jockey, I won on some of their grandmothers, which <laughs> makes me feel a little bit old. Yes. But um, similar to what Paul said, 
you know the traits of that family, mm. um, good or bad. It can um, it can draw you to a horse, but can also turn you off a horse mm. with particular traits. So, with a long history in Sydney racing, I've got quite a quite a bank of knowledge of of horses that have raced, you know, specifically in New South Wales over a period of time and. As I said, some of those traits are good and some not so good, and that that um, it'll turn you either way with a horse, especially if you're, you know, fifty-fifty on it, or even if you just know a particular family that, um, you know, I've trained a, for um, owners Jeff and Mary Grimish, and mm. had some good luck with Splintex and Invicta Salute and mm. Six Gun. They're all they're all horses they bred. Now they, their yearlings had all started off very small, and you wouldn't buy them at a yearling sale but knowing the family and how they mature I'd be drawn to anything in that family that started off a little bit small and um, you know, we got one last year out of that family that uh, is two now and he he didn't cost a lot of money um, and he's grown into a lovely yearling a lovely two-year-old now so they're the little things that you can look at knowing a particular family and they might go under the radar of some I hear you well, what about the proven mob? Excluding Nakoni, the top five size so far this season by prize money and winners, that's Vinny, Written Tycoon, Snitzel, Zoostar, Seamus Award, and So You Think are represented. There are the Young Guns, the Newgate Battalion, Morris and Shalar, and Star Turn. Are there proven size, Hubie, that you gravitate towards? Do you have a personal favourite? Well, I used to like, well, I did, I were not a single doubt, but that's not... His uh, last, last, last crop now. How many have got? Almost, nine options, no, yeah, nine opportunities it, yeah. to get some. And then, you know, uh, so you think I like. Um, uh, the interesting one, I think, actually, is Zoostar. Uh, mm. Because, well, I love them, the way they walked and did it, all that kind of thing. Everything else. But I didn't buy any down here, but I bought a few up in the Northern Hemisphere this time. So it's got to be very interesting if he works up there. I'm sure he will. You know, they've supported him very well. So. Um, yeah, I really pretty much like them. To be honest with you, I, I, there's none of them I don't like. If, if I knew one of them through bad temperaments, you know, like Dundeal, I love him. Yeah. You know, um, probably go more. It's, it's a way of sort of looking at this sort of thing is that sometimes we have a budget to buy. And uh, if you're trying to buy the Golden Slipper winner, they just make crazy money, you mm. know, and everybody wants to go to Slipper winner. But there's so much prize money around for the 1600 to 2000 meter horse, you know, with this huge prize money, a little bit more backward horse. And people seem to slightly back off them a little bit you know uh, and so there's a bit of value there so uh, for me personally uh, if I was buying for for a client not say Derby because they they like more that sort of speedy type of horse yeah. you know but I would be trying to get the the slightly more distance horse won't be running in the golden slipper get a little bit of value and you end up at the end of the day middle horse if you're lucky they could have won a couple of million yeah yeah you know so um, I'm more away from the speed slightly but you've got to have speed. Everybody has to have speed because that's what the, the world is becoming now. But everything's shortening in distance, whether it's a mile and a half horse coming into 10 furlongs, whether our derbies or everything's changing. It's got to be speed. Um, but at the same time, I don't mind those mile 10 furlong horses. In fact, I was told the other day by somebody, they were rang up and they said it was a miler. And they said, oh, they talked about him as a stare down here. And I thought, Jesus, I've really heard it all now. <laughs> you know, I mean, a miler's a miler. Yes. Yeah. But down here, he's now nearly become seen as a stare uh, which is which is crazy which talk is when you think we've got the Queen Elizabeth coming up over yeah. 2,000 that's mm. worth 4 mil the, the Derby's are worth a, and Oaks are worth a fortune the Sydney Cup's still worth a fair old whack of prize money um, I, I know the the blood sock, stock side of the world tends to be a little bit speed obsessed but Dundeals had no problem being a, a three year old triple crown winner and Queen Elizabeth winner uh, Piero yeah. may have won a slipper but he's as stoutly bred as they 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 Come, Paul. I know you're contractually obligated to mention a an Arrowfield stallion, but do you have a favourite sort of among the proven brigade that you think just is a great sales stallion? And obviously, Snitzel's going got the runs on the board. Is there is there another that you you're particularly fond of as a great sales stallion? Well, I mean, 
you've got horses that there's no doubt about it that produce really good sales types mm. and race horses and sales types are two different things yes, so 100%. Uh, there's no doubt that we, it's really nice when you get a very successful stallion that is also a great sales horse mm. because they're producing yearlings that you're going to fetch money for there's other breeds that fetch great race horses but you're never going to fetch money, much money for them in the ring because they're just not the sexy types. Yeah. So uh, it's a hard question to answer because it's it's kind of two pronged. Um, but I think one of the things just brought up a second ago, and when you're talking about distance versus speed as well, I mean the owners, you, you know, they're for these guys that talk to the owners. You know, a guy is either going to want a horse that's going to be a, a potentially a a gold slipper type runner or a two-year-old or they're happy to have a derby horse you know and there's not many horses that do both so i mm. think when you're going and you're picking out horses you know realistically if you're looking at a bunch of done deals you're looking at those mile to two thousand mile and a half type horses and you're going to get some that are a bit more precocious because we are breeding into a lot of speed mares yes um but uh, fundamentally that's one side of it now if you're buying a schnitzel out of a a fast mare or an I'm Invincible out of a fast mare, you know where you're headed. You know, they're normally horses that aren't going aren't gonna to stick on as, uh, you know, derby distances, although, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule. But, yeah, fundamentally, I think there's, there's two sides to that. Yeah. And I think this sale in particular, you do get a lot of classic horses at, so there's a lot of, you know, there's several Oaks winners in this catalogue. Mm. And I think that's one thing that Australia offers uh, that I think a lot of the rest of the world doesn't. The access to... Everyone here sells their best stock, whereas in the other, generally in the northern hemisphere, a lot of the best stock is retained, and you know trainers and bloodstock agents don't actually get a look at it or a, a good shot at. Whereas here, pretty much everyone puts everything in the ring, and uh, everyone gets an opportunity then to to select what the best horses are. English Easter Yearling Sale statistically provides the best opportunity for you to buy the best horses. English Easter has been the source of 28 individual Group 1 winners since 2018. 16 Group 1 winning Colts, stakes winners in 10 different countries and 8 Group 1 winners that could have been bought for $200,000 or less, including Exceedance, Mizzy, Funstar, Land of Plenty, Quick Thinker and Zutori. The 2022 renewal will be held on April 5 and 6 at Inglis Riverside. Inspections begin on Wednesday, March 30. Buy better at Inglis Easter. Paul made a great point about the sales horse versus the running horse, Mark. And, and is there an opportunity for a trainer at that sort of mid-level where, where you'd sort of like to operate to, to find a stallion that throws a racehorse but isn't necessarily going to, to light up the eyes of someone who likes that sales horse? Yeah, look... For, for a trainer like myself, that I don't train for any of the stallion syndicates and they're looking for those two-year-old colts, slipper-type ones. As Hubie said, they're very expensive. I'd say two years ago, um, I wrote to my owners before the sales season started and said, I'm going to start to concentrate on three-year-old plus types at mm -hmm. a mile to 2,000 metres because there was value in the market there exactly what Hubie said and they and I ended up on board horses by Piero so you think done deal mm. with those type of races in mind because all the new races that have been added to the Sydney calendar primarily are for three-year-olds and up and at 1600 and above mm. and that market's been a little ignored and you know we didn't have races like you know the Gong, the Hunter, the Golden Eagle, yes. um, those type, they weren't heard of before. And then this year we've got new races. We've got an invitation for fillies and mares over 1,400 metres. We've got a five-year-old race at, at yeah. Rose Hill coming up, 2,000 metres, $2 million. You know, an, another one on Melbourne Cup Day, a mile, a mile race called the Big Dance. It's yeah. $2 million over a mile. So those type of horses, there's a much bigger opportunity. So, you know, for someone... I primarily buy anywhere from 50000 to 300000 That's about uh, my budget on horses. My owners are, are happy with that and, and prepared to you know, take a share in a few horses in that market and gives them a chance to get a really good return and, and race horses over a few seasons. Mm. You know, um, the, the model of the Stallion Syndicate is to really get them up and going if they're not group winners at two, well, then they're generally, you know, sold on to Hong Kong and to Asia as as gelded three-year-olds. So, 
you know, if, if you've got an owner that's looking to participate for a few years and get some enjoyment out of racing, um, the model of the stallion syndicate isn't for you, and, yes. you, and, and you're better off with a, with a trainer that, um, uh, you know, is, is there to race horses over a few seasons, you know, for the enjoyment of the owners. What about mum, Hubie? I mean, you're looking well, at, not so your mum, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the mother of the yearling question. What about the, the, the dam side? Are you, do you have any peccadilloes in terms of, of what you're, you're led towards? Do you prefer proven to, yeah, to the no, new like, race record? I mean, it's a very generalised question that would you mm. could answer like this or like that. But actually, I prefer to probably, well, the older mares, if they start looking at the stock look like right of an old mare, well, they're pretty much... You know, unless it's a really well-bred filly that you're going to bring back to the stud later yes. on, I, I just kind of ignore those. But I mean, you know, if you look at it properly, and she's had six runners, and five of those have been by a shocking stallion, mm. you've got to, and she's only had three winners out of the six or whatever it was. You've got to give her a chance. If she suddenly comes up in full to Snetchel or whatever, then you've got to say cheaper. So I mean, she was covered before by, I don't know what. So it, it's. Um, it's really down a little bit to what are they making the yearling sales? If they didn't make a lot of money, they look, they're obviously look like rubbish. Probably couldn't run uh, because they, they weren't athletes and everything else. So, you know, each time you look at it, it's an individual thing, but you've got to look nicely what they were covered by, what they made as a sales, who trained them as well, because they could have gone to a shocking train, uh, not a great trainer like, like Mark, um, or whatever, or Paul. Or Paul. But, or Paul, yeah. yeah. I mean, they could have, you know, so there's a whole. There's a lot of mishmash in the whole yeah. thing, you know, so you can't just dismiss it straight away. You know, if it's a really nice, as I come back to this thing, if it's a really nice type, and I look at them all as types before I start going back to the pedigree, and then if it's such a good type, then you start thinking, well, is it the best that the mayor's ever had, you know? So she could be actually be the group winner, yeah. be, the, be, the, be the pearl. You know, so uh, we look at it a lot like that, you know, it's not just a case just pet the catalogue and say, oh, sure. she's eight runners and two winners, and let's dismiss it. Yes. Because there could be a reason why but then at the same time, you might get it cheaper. I mean, we bought a Zoo Star in England this year for not a lot of money, but we did a bit of research. It was superbly bred. I bought it for Mark, you know, Sir Mark Todd. Mm. And um, we started looking into the thing, and then we did quite a lot of research going into the rig before. And we, we found out the first three out of she was the fourth foal, the first three hadn't won. And the trainer who trained them said, she was the, the one that we bought by Zoo Star, was by far the best out of the mare. The other three were complete rubbish yeah and he said they could not win a race if you gave them a one horse race and they still wouldn't win it but this thing was so far ahead of it and so we bought it you know so whether it would prove right or prove wrong i don't know but if i prove right she's worth a fortune and that goes back to what you were talking about mark having that inside information of you know having worked with the family before or or the little the little things that that can, it gives you a little bit more confidence. Page. Yeah, it gives you a little bit more confidence. And and look, the first the first sale I went to as a trainer was Magic Me and Sale, and I bought a horse called Quackerjack, and I only had mm. had an order to buy one. And um, I went to I looked at every not a single doubt in the catalogue because I thought he's the right stallion for someone like myself starting off. It's about the lowest risk one you could buy. They go in wet, they go in dry, they train on, he might be a good two-year-old, and he was all those things as it turned out. But he was out of, um, he was out of a mare that um, we'd had a couple of the progeny through gaze, and for whatever reason, they'd showed ability. Um, one actually got badly hurt in an accident, but had showed good ability, um, so it hadn't been exposed. So knowing that, and, and him being, he was the best type the mare had had to that stage, probably still is, um, I went there with a bit of confidence to buy him that he was about the lowest risk horse I could buy, um, and he turned out a wonderful racehorse for us. And what about Team Arrowfield's approach to buying? And I know obviously you're, you're a stud operation as well as being a racing enterprise and, and Hubie sort of teased it with his talk about residual value is that something that you are factoring in when you're looking at healing when you're in the ring having a bid uh, assessing horses you might want to buy the residual or is it yeah primarily for us it's obviously residuals number one being a breeding operation and then we're obviously the racing upside so we're trying to buy both um, but as Hubie mentioned earlier you know you look at the type and then the page probably tells you how much you're gonna have to pay for it so when you find something you love 
Um, these days, you kind of hope that it's got some type of an X-ray issue if you really love it, and you get a bit of a discount on it. You know, something that's not going to really affect the horse, but nonetheless does affect the market price for it. But um, uh, we're always looking for for well-bred fillies that can complement our broodmare band, and uh, yeah, but residual value and what we can breed them to is a big consideration for us. So, um, and even when we're buying horses, we're looking at we're looking for farms that are proven producers. Uh, that produce top class horses that mm. we're going to buy off, um, but a lot of the time, you know, even within our own draft, uh, we're looking at the horses that we produce for other people. So we often buy because yeah. um, a lot of our draft isn't owned by ourselves or owned by clients of ours. So we often buy a lot of those. And as Mark alluded to before, knowing the families, I've seen these horses since they were born, so I know what they're like all the way through. I know their families. I know what the mares have had. As you've said, you know, some mares might have spat out a couple of little tiny midgets and then this is the first decent horse that the mayor's had and that's information the marketplace doesn't know yeah, you know how their it's, heads work exactly, you know you've seen that exactly. growth pattern thing yeah happening. it's inside yeah. information and you mm. want to be able to act on that because that's probably a little bit of insight that the market doesn't have so uh, we've always done very well buying out of our own draft mm. uh, even though they're not our horses uh, but we're also looking abroad as well to see if there's families that we can tap into that uh, are going to complement our, our, our stallion roster World champion sprinter Harry Angel. With a time form rating of 132, more than Nature Strip, Classique Legend or Redzel, is it any wonder that his first yearlings have averaged more than nine times his fee? Is it any wonder that they have caught the eye of Chris Waller, Anthony and Sam Friedman, Michael and Richard Friedman and Seamus Mills to name but a few? They believe in angels. And why not? After all, he could fly. How thoroughly do you two look at the the X-rays, as Paul alluded to? Are there are there things that are must-haves in an X-ray and things that you can forgive? It depends who your client is. Yes. Um, I trained for quite a few guys in Hong Kong, and you know their requirement is lower risk as possible in case they want to import the horse to Hong Kong at some stage. Um, and here, um, you know, if I'm even buying a horse to split up amongst um, my owners, I've got to disclose everything I know about the horse. So mm. if if it's a moderate risk, but uh, my vet says, look, if you take your time with it, you'll be fine. Sometimes you'll even say, don't break it in for four months. Uh, yeah, it's right. only an immaturity issue, things like that. So as long as you're um, uh, upfront and disclose anything you know about the horse and something that you're prepared to forgive, and the type of horses I'm buying that are generally looking at three-year-old plus, you've got that time on your side. I'm not trying, you know, I'm generally not trying to buy the golden slipper winner, so it, it won't make any difference to its career if I don't break it in for three or four months and give it that little bit extra time. Cubie? Well, I, I certainly, looking from the European side of it, um, I would say that X-ray issues, depending on what the X-ray issue is, but we'd be a little bit more forgiving because of our racetracks, it's more softer ground or okay. we're more, again, just giving them time is so important and we might give them a bit of time. Um, but you've got to disclose it. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously coming in here as a bloodstock agent, so I'm never going to buy a horse for somebody without actually telling them there's an, an x-ray issue. So you've got to explain yes. what the problem is. And if it's acceptable, you take a chance. Normally you're discounted for it. As, you, as Paul said, you know, if you're buying it for 50% of the dollar, um, that's great, you know. But I've seen a lot of horses that had X-ray issues that never had a problem. I mean, I was working for Sheikh Hamdan. We missed out on a yearling one day because we were buying so many that our farm vet that was betting everything missed this horse. Gee, tough problem to have. We we're buying so yeah. many horses, we missed one. You know, we, 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 we generally did. I mean, we, <laughs> we, 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 it was at golf sales, and he, yeah. we, we've gone completely. Well, it was just he loved buying over there anyway so he bought this he missed the horse completely bought it home and the following day the vet rang me up and he said got a bit of a serious problem here he said this fellow's got an x-ray issue in all four legs all four of them and I said Christ I said well we can't tell him down that what are we going to say yeah. and he said turn him out for a year and we forget about the thing and that horse won eight races and he was still in training as a five-year-old. Yeah. Not a bother. He was the soundest horse we ever had. Ever. And to, to the day Hamdan died, he never knew that this horse had an X-ray issue. But in all four legs, it wasn't just one leg. Mm. So, but that's an that's a, a, a unusual situation. Yeah. But, you know, we will definitely um, d buy with an X-ray issue, depending exactly where it is. It, you know, if it's a stifle thing or something like that, that's okay. But if it's in the knee or something that you can't, you have a problem with, well then probably back off it altogether. Yes. There's no doubt there's a softening 
in terms of thinking around x-ray issues because yep. so many people in the last 10 years have bypassed or let horses go past because yep. they had an issue, they loved the horse but couldn't get past the fact yeah. that the vet had, had canned it. So there's a lot of people now that you know are taking much more, it's not really risk, you're trying to mitigate risk all the time, that's what yep. the game's about. Mm. And so you know, if you put everything on the table and as Mark said, it, a lot of it comes down to management and what you do with the horse. And a lot of these things are, you know, those x-rays are a snap in time there uh, it's a bit of a moving feast and things that are an issue now are going to grow out and not be an issue in three months yes. time so you've got to take all that into consideration but there is value there knowing what those issues are and whether or not they're going to grow out and be a problem or whether things you can live with or the way you train they have a lot to do with it mm. where you train has a lot to do with it so there's a lot of factors involved but there's no doubt um and vets see things differently as well you can get several vet reports and they can all read the same horse differently. So it's, it's an interesting little area and it's been quite ambiguous, you know, I'd say recently. And, but people are starting to get a bit of feel for it, I think, and, and I think they're, they're less judgmental than they used to be. It's, it's still an inexact science and it sounds to me, as with pretty much everything in the yearling buying game, that it's about what risk you're willing to accept and what you're not. Let's talk about stuff you're not willing to accept. I'll go around the table. What is the one no-no physically when you see a horse come out and you go, look, for me, Mark Newnham, I will never buy a horse with X. Really bad hocks. Um, I just think, you know, riding horses, that's where you're getting your drive from. Mm. And um, I, I just say put it away. Yeah. yeah so that, that, that's my no-no. Kim? The funniest thing, hocks is exactly mine too, a bad hind leg. Uh, I'm very happy to take back of the knees or, you know, slightly flat because that's a very Australian thing. I mean, I was interested just seeing, noticing it this year, how many are what I would call flat through the knees, which we don't have in Europe at all. It seems to have gone completely, but I don't worry about that in the slightest. I'd be much prefer that than a horse was over his knees. But a bad hind leg, a weak hock, a hip to hock, is, for me, I could, it's a no-no, or a horse that's very close behind if his hock's walking away from you. When I started buying over here many, many years ago, uh, when I worked over here, Colin Hayes, we had started having horses with Colin, mm. and he was my sort of teacher as such, he was like a sort of second father, you know. Mm. I went around, saw hundreds of horses with Colin, but he would never accept a horse that when they walked from you away that they weren't completely squared off, he just would not touch them. And um, so I learned a lot about the hind structure probably from Colin, where up in Europe we've got a lot more stairs, which are more narrow horses, you know, they're just a different structure of a horse. You know, one looks like Usain Bolt, the sprinter, the other looks like Gabriel Heidi Selassie or whatever. Mo Salah or like a, whoever. Yeah, yeah Mo yeah, Salah, exactly yeah, they were just that. totally different. Phenotypically um, That was the structure. And yeah. so I look at them, I, I still can't take a bad hind leg. I mean, just yeah. one of those hooky hocks and I just, just exactly what Mark just said. <laughs> what about you? Paul? Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I mainly, most of the horses that I've ever trained uh, were horses we probably ever couldn't even take to a sale or sell or um, pass in. A lot of them were bad-legged horses, so I've always, feet are a major issue for me and a bit of a passion on the farm when it comes to raising the horses and ensuring that I can try and give them the best feet that we can. Um, I don't like horses that have been corrected, uh, particularly from an early age, mm. and they get distorted feet. You get these hoof capsules that are all um, odd-shaped. Uh, I think hitting the ground uh, in, a, in a flat and very even manner, uh, that can make up for a lot of difficulties when you have uh, offset knees and other things that I think are only minor issues uh, if you have a good set of feet. So um, that's generally the hoof is an important part for what I look at. Particularly given what they're going to be doing in their career and you're talking about what is essentially a fingernail, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Bearing all of that weight at, at top speed is, is um, pretty intense pressure. What about your one random thing that you love to see in a yearling? The, 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 the thing that most people might scoff at and go, why is Mark into that? Temperament. Yeah. Because I think when you, and I like to look at, if I'm very keen on a horse, I shouldn't be telling Paul this, you'll know I've come back at different, I come back <laughs> at different times of the day to look at it. So I might look at a horse three or four times, five times, if I'm, if I'm really, really like the horse or, I'm, or I need to be convinced. And if that horse is paraded a lot, and it parades the same at nine o'clock in the morning and three in the afternoon, and it's been out 20 times that day, I like to see them parade the same way because this is the first time they've been placed under any pressure in mm. their life. 
And that's what we're doing to them when we take them into a stable. We're putting them in a pressure situation. It's the same when they go to their first trial and go to the races and how they handle that and and physically and mentally through the sale is the thing that I look for then. Once I've decided I like the horse, you know, type-wise, pedigree-wise, um, then it's down to temperament. So even as they enter the ring, potentially, we're looking... For, for listeners down onto the English ring now, and I'm pointing towards it, but uh, if, a, if a horse that you like and hasn't shown any temperamental issues starts to play up in the ring, is that enough I'll, to... I'll be a little bit forgiving in the ring, but I'll yeah. always go out the back and look at them in the five or ten minutes pre-parade yeah. because it just takes that level of pressure up a little bit more again. Um, once I actually get into the ring and there's a lot happening and there's a big crowd and it's noisy, they're going to react a little bit anyway. Um, but um, you know that that time in that five minutes leading up to coming in the ring is also important. Can you train that out of them in the preparation, Paul? Yeah, my experience has varied on this point. Um, I've had horses that um, that have been absolutely terrible to handle at the sales and have gone home and got broken in. And and some of the reasons why we couldn't sell them is because their attitude was bad at the sales yeah. and taken them home, broken them in, and they've been the most placid horses I've ever trained and were straightforward. And others that were great at the sale. When got broken in and then we lost trouble, their minds. It's troublesome. So yeah. um, it does go both ways, but there's no doubt, you know, you can stand there and you go and look at a horse and stand there like a statue. It gives you a lot of confidence in what you're seeing. And uh, I do note that, like Mark does, we do get quite a lot of buyers that come and look at the horses late in the afternoon um, just to see you. how. You already knew. See how, how they you know, <laughs> particularly around feed time, see how they're traveling and uh, what, they're, what they're coping with. So. Um, it's, uh, I'm sure it's a, you know, and, and once again, what works for Mark and his regime is individual to what Mark wants. So, you mm. know, he's looking for a particular horse that can handle his environment. And if that's part of what's worked for him in the past, why would you change? Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Hubie? Any, any Hubieisms that, that are, you yeah, think are peculiar well, just to you? My main thing is motion. Um, on this thing, where I, like, I mean, whenever I go to a sailor, when they come out of the box, I just want I to walk them straight away, but I don't want to stand them. I just want to walk them straight away. And if, you know, the people talk about these great long strides and overstriding, that's not motion. Motion, they can actually even overstretch by that much, but they have some kind of a swagger about them, light on their feet. You know, if you hear them on the concrete out here, a horse is hitting the ground up, sorry. Hollywood level yeah. effects. Yeah. yeah, well, I like to walk them on the hard ground yeah. so I can hear them. And because uh, you can hear horses float by, you didn't know they were gone. You know, I mean, literally, they just float. And um, so motion is the best thing. And then when they stand up afterwards, then you look to see that balance and what they are and if this and that. But if they don't have motion, yes, uh, for me, but I could be wrong on that. But listen, everyone has a different idea. But I, without motion, I don't think you've got a, it's, it's a sort of basic, part of everything that leads on into cantering and galloping and a bad walker is just a horse usually he's a bad walker because there's something else you know he's got a bad high leg or you know there's something not quite right to, and he's just a bad walker the 2022 sales season is here and if you want integrity you can trust you need a federation of bloodstock agents australia accredited member FBAA members are guided by a strict code of ethics, making them accountable in all dealings and giving confidence that you'll be represented to the highest possible standard. For contact details of FBAA agents, head to bloodstockagents.com.au and secure peace of mind today. Any trends that you would, at the sales that you would prefer weren't trending, Paul, from a vendor's perspective in terms of things that people tend to like that you think that's just silly? Um, no, not particularly. As I said, it's always in the eye of the beholder. Um, things have changed recently in terms of, as I said, the x-rays and the scopes and bits and pieces. That's been another interesting thing from a vendor's point of view. Up until recently, we didn't put the scopes on the, um, the repository. And uh, I'd sit there and I'd have all the vets come up and mark the scopes, rate the scopes. And I kept a, a docket of just over, kind of over their shoulder what they were rating them. And even the scope variation was very different from from vet to vet so there's not a lot of standardization in that area of it and sometimes i find that a little bit uh, difficult to, from our point of view and also explaining to some of our clients uh, when i think a horse is going to fetch three hundred thousand, and we struggle to get a hundred thousand dollar bid and certainly from all our information it's got clean x-rays and a normal scope and everything looks great 
and uh, you're surprised that the people you thought were going to buy it didn't bid mm. and you ask why and they said oh well it failed the vetting and you're kind of scratching your head and uh, you've got to go back to the the owner and, and, and kind of explain what happened and with all the information we've got we can't kind of explain it so there are those types of things it's just a bit of ambiguity around that stuff that I find a little bit tricky um, but other than that I think um, I think everything's pretty straightforward I think there's particularly through COVID in, in particular we're trying to give as much information out as we can about mm. the horses um, about their pedigrees and I, I think it's probably pushed um, that side of things forward and more quickly um, so we give as much information as we can to the trainers anyone that buys the horses uh, we give them all the pedigree background the videos everything we can to try and make their job easier um, but that's certainly improved in the last uh, certainly the last two years because of COVID and uh, it's been great I think the sales generally have been unbelievably strong COVID's been at the beginning I thought it'd be Armageddon we were preparing for the absolute worst um, but it's been an amazing thing for, for racing in Australia and there's no doubt a lot more eyeballs on the sport since we were the only sport that was going for a while. I had friends ring me up and tell me that uh, the only thing that come out of COVID was they've turned their uh, children into problem gamblers because all they do on the Saturdays, <laughs> they, had nothing, they had nothing to watch on the TV. They turned the racing on and they'd run their own book at home. Yeah, the six-year-old was having 10 Monopoly dollars on... You know, Mark's favourite in the second at 10 to 1. You know, sorry, Mark's, you know, Mark's horse yeah. in the second at 10 to 1. So it was all this type of thing. So there's no doubt we've, and particularly at that, uh, maybe not this sale uh, itself, but uh, certainly the classic sale and other sales, <clears throat> the amount of involvement from the syndication side of things and the numbers, and I think through the internet, being able to reach those people, mm. um, it's been extraordinary. And I think it's all been pretty good. And I think, I think things have been trending in certainly the right way um, maybe not if you're on the buyer side but from the seller side the last two years it has been extraordinary and money's been kept in the country that was probably going overseas and spent elsewhere uh, but I'm sure you know Mark is equally and maybe, maybe it's been easier for them to sell the horses that they bought as well so I don't know if that's the case but um, certainly that's the feel that we get on the ground and um, there's confidence in the industry the industry's going well um, it's it's well funded and I think people are happy to participate. I think one of the things um, that Paul touched on there and has been one of the really good things to come out of COVID is the amount of information that's available mm. to the buyers, the amount of transparency. Um, and I think you'll find that you know the more transparent we become in the sale of racehorses, and that might even be me on selling a horse as as a tried horse. Um, it it gains momentum with with people's confidence in the sport mm. that um, you know they're not being misled. You disclose everything. You 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 disclose the risks as well. And I say to any new um, buyer, I call it their entertainment dollars, mm. and and say to them, have you got that money to lose? Because that's that's what it is. Some people. You know, and, and they've probably had this money now, spent it on expensive holidays, golf memberships, boats, um, horses are another expense for your, for your entertainment, whether, mm. you know, your family or an individual, that, that's what it comes down to. And if they're prepared to spend that much money on what now is becoming their hobby and entertainment, um, well, that's they need to have that money to lose because we know that that's what can, can happen. And on the... On the upside of that is that they can end up having a lot of fun, meet a lot of people, um, and 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 gain uh, a lifestyle um, and, and um, a recreation that they can share with their family and friends. Because as soon as the horse starts winning, the, the group of people coming to the races to watch it race grows mm. week by week. You know, <laughs> there might be there might be husband and wife turn up. Um, you know, for the first couple of starts, but once the horse starts racing on a Saturday in Sydney mm. or in group races, it becomes, oh, can we get an extra six tickets or can we get an extra 10 tickets because the group grows and grows. And with that, they bring their friends into it and so all of a sudden they're, they're joining syndicates um, to, to buy into horses. So um, COVID for racing has actually been a good thing. Mm. I mean, it's absolutely correct. COVID has it exposed racing. Uh, it was one of the only sports that was allowed to continue during COVID, you know, which was very good, and it did expose. But 
you know, Australian racing is the envy of the world uh, because of its of everything to do with it, um, from prize money to you name it. But the, I mean, the syndication model is just so incredible. And out of that, uh, it's well policed, which is really important as well, and uh, gives confidence to someone new coming in who's down in the pub or whatever. Because you know, people, I hear it quite a lot. People would love to own a little piece of a horse, but they're, they're frightened to get involved because they actually don't know how, a probably how to do it. This is probably talking about the European side at the moment a little bit because here the syndicating model is so good how you get to the people and it's, and it's a lot of information given out. So it's easy then you can talk to their mates who's got 5% or 1% of a horse. It's just a, it's like a spreading uh, whatever. It just works. Mm. The people in the pub tell everybody else and then you know, it, it just is, the syndication thing is just the way the world has got to go. Yeah, uh, we're we're too far behind of it in, in Europe, but we've got to take it more seriously. You know, really, and I'm just tangenting away now from what we're, what you're actually talking about. Well, I think it's all it's all but part it's, of it, that racing organism, though, isn't yeah. it? Ultimately, to Mark's point, making information more freely ab- available and easy to understand, and having access to the people who can basically decipher what is a foreign language sometimes the 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 world of racing, the form book, the pedigree yeah. page, that that sort of thing builds confidence to your point which allows people to have confidence in parting with their leisure dollar in whatever way that might be it might be having a punt it might be buying a horse or, or, but I think or whatever you I think like. you'll find too that racing is a sport where everyone's so accessible mm. you know if if someone approaches me at the races and says oh look could I come and talk to you about getting a share in a horse it's 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 really easy to be a part of but as Hubie said, a lot of people don't know how to go yes. about it, and the syndicators have been come, become really good at that. But it'd be the same if someone just rings Paul out of the blue and says, "Look, I want to, I want to start breeding a couple of horses. You know, what what do I do?" Yeah. Everyone's so easily accessible. You don't see that in other sports. Well, you can't go down the sideline and tap Craig Bellamy on the shoulder and, and have a chat with him. No, but even try and get him storm. on game day. Try and yeah. get him for an interview on game day. Whereas trainers, jockeys. You know, owners, breeders, they're available all the time. Mm. And it might be Saturday morning, um, you know, I've got three runners at Ramwick on Saturday. If if I'm required for an interview at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning for the radio, I'm always available. Mm. And so are the jockeys. So it's one sport. If you tried to get, you know, if you tried to get Craig Bellamy on, on game day, on grand final day, Good luck. no chance. Yeah. You know, so one thing that we as participants... Um, are, are used to is being available to, you know, the press, be it, you know, be it Sky or, or the radio or the, or the papers, so that the information um, is easily accessible from, you know, your owner and your punter, which, you know, your punters are driving the industry as well. So, you know, for us providing that service, it gives a level of confidence, you know, for them to be having a bet on a Saturday afternoon. Well, making yourself available to a podcast for an hour. Thank you, gentlemen. You've been incredibly enlightening. So I'll, I'll let you all go off and, and try and find that next champion, that next top lot. Uh, but much appreciated. And, and thanks for joining us on Connections Cast. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Hus. Well, wasn't that interesting? Thanks for joining us on another TDN AusNZ Connections Cast, presented by Newgate, raising top class racehorses. If you enjoyed, why not give us a five star rating? It helps new listeners find the show. Recommend us to friends or even to people you don't like very much. And make sure you head over to tdnoznz.com.au and subscribe to the Daily Edition. It's pretty indispensable if you're a fair dinkum about the Australasian thoroughbred industry. Until next time, I've been Angus Rowland. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 